Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Rose City Politics. It's June 30th, 2021. Our regular panel tonight includes myself, John Lidke, and Doug Sartori. Doug, how you doing? I'm doing well. So a uh, little bit of inside baseball for our listeners. One of the things that John does to warm us up, especially when we have guests, is tell the filthiest jokes imaginable right before the podcast starts. That's why we're all laughing and smiling. Maybe one day John will uh, compile those all together into a, uh, a book of his, his filthy, filthy humor. I was thinking, Doug, I'm going to be releasing the jokes one by one on our Patreon. (laughs) So that's why you're going to want to support us by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Rose City Politics. That's a segue. Uh, We also appear in print monthly and online bizxmagazine.com and in print, of course. Please like, follow, share us on wherever you are on social media, wherever you get your podcasts. And we at Rose City Politics have been broadcasting live on tape for the past 16 months. And it's all been possible with the kind support of Leuna 625 Building Better Communities. We can't say thank you enough to them. We've got three topics tonight. We've got two guests tonight, and we've got one dirty joke coming up in the Patreon segment to do the whole Christmas song format there. We're going to be talking at first about Windsor Community Improvement Plans, the CIPs, specifically talking about downtown and Ford City. We've got two people here. You're going to want to hear what they have to say because... They got skin in the game. We're also going to be moving on to you Windsor students who were surprised at the 80 Knox City of Windsor and University of Windsor decision about pool sharing. They didn't know anything. And finally, tonight, we're going to be talking about how Ottawa has targeted Windsor for an immigration pilot. This is Rose City Politics. We're going to dive right into this. Up first, as I said, council's eyeing $680,000 roughly in the incentives to spur downtown and Ford City projects. We've taken this from the Windsor Stars. Brian Cross, who put this out yesterday on the 29th, really glad that we have tonight to talk to us about this. Reese Trenhale, one of the co-owners of the Canada Building. Reese, how are you doing tonight? How's it going? Thanks for having me on. Doing great. So glad to have you here. Really looking forward to your perspective on all of this. And we also have Sinisha Simic, co-owner of 1012 Drulard Road. That is the Morris Dry Goods store. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Glad to have you here. Your co-owner for of having me. Yeah, you're co-owner of that with Nicole Belargeron. Now, did I get both of your names correct there? Uh, you're close enough. It's Bayargeon. Okay. So well, you got to go real French on that. And I, I'm Simich. So that's the, you got to oh. go real serve on that. So we're, it's the United Nations over here. That, that's fine. I mean, my last name's Lidke. I've got enough consonants in that, that it'll confuse anyone. So I, I can appreciate it. You know, God bless the European way of doing things. Uh, uh, these guys have vowels in your, in your name. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, let's get into this right now. Next week, Windsor City Council will decide whether or not to approve roughly 700000 in incentives to spur $12 million worth of transformative redevelopments downtown and in Ford City. CIPs passed in recent years are now paying dividends, and they're encouraging investors to renovate buildings as a key to boosting the local economy. 
Since the downtown CIP was approved by council in 2017, there have been 24 projects worth of total of 135 million that have been approved. Now, we're talking though about some new stuff that's going on here. The Canada building owners, as I said, we have Reese Trenhill here, co-owner, are eyeing 11 million to convert the top 10 floors into 88 residential units and the first two floors for commercial occupancy. Council is going to be considering this application from co-owners Reed Reno, Reese Trenhale, Gord Martin, and Carolyn Martin for a total of $412,000, well, $413,000 roughly in CIP grants, including facade grants, upper story residential grants, building property improvement tax increment grants to offset municipal tax increases for the next 10 years. Um, it's, you know, it's been what's been spurring what we're seeing in the downtown, a transformative process. It's been, what, a year and a half to two, three years of the CIP program being in place. And I think that, you know, if people haven't been in Windsor for a number of years, even just five years, and they were to walk through the downtown core, they would go, oh, my God, like, what's happened here? Did a money bomb just get dropped on the downtown core? And uh, the, the answer is really yes. Uh, so let's pull in Reese Trenhale right now. Reese, I want to hear from you right off the bat. You know, why downtown? Why the Canada building? Why is this program what you're looking to tap into? So why is it all happening now? Do you mean? Yeah, like, you know, why now? Like, how does the CIP help with it? Why did you choose specifically the Canada building? Like, tell me the story. So, um you know, when it comes to the downtown core, it starts with the fact that there's a large demand for uh, for for residential housing, whether that is uh, for ownership or whether that's for renting. Um, we decided to try to find something um, that would uh, help with the shortage in uh, renting. You know, for example, uh, people need to sort of realize that you know Windsor has done a great job of, of attracting a lot of campuses to the downtown core from the city uh, from the university and from the college so you've dumped thousands and thousands of university students alone just as one demographic example into the downtown core that weren't down there a thousand days ago three days ago or three years ago and if you know anything about students they want to wake up follow to bed and fall into class I remember and that they can't do that in the downtown core. Um, so for me personally, I mean, I lived downtown at um, one of the condo towers for 16 years. Um, I've been a diehard uh, booster of the downtown core. I was one of the three founding members of the Downtown Residents Association back in the day, um, which led to great things like the downtown farmer's market. Um, so as my sort of uh, business ability has grown, um, as the Canada building came up as an opportunity, um, I realized that the mathematics sort of now worked for two reasons that weren't there, again, about three years ago. Um, the community improvement plan is still reasonably new, I guess in the last five years. And now housing prices, real estate prices are coming up to a point where all of a sudden the developer can repurpose a building like the Canada building and do an extensive amount of work. I, we think we're paying over 11 or 12 million in renovations in the building. But we can do that now. And we can justify that now and we can make a profit now. Uh, whereas we couldn't three or four years ago. And this is why you don't only see sort of our developments downtown. 
uh, you're seeing uh, sort of not just local developers, you're seeing out of town uh, developers now coming into Windsor, which we haven't seen in <laughs> probably since the early 70s. And that's the reason, right? And um, I always stress this with the CIP, it's not just about the grants, it's not just about the tax freezes. It's the message that the city is sending to the developers, not just the locals, but the out-of-towners. They're saying we're open for business. They're saying we're serious about solving our housing problem, which you solve by supporting people that are in the business full-time of providing housing, right? And this is sort of the drive, but that's the message that you send with the SCIP is come on in. We're serious about business. If you come down here, we're not going to try and screw up your, your deal and your opportunity and your idea. This is the message. The CIP is saying we're serious about this. We're going to help you make this happen. Instead, so, we're going to transfer you up. It sounds like you actually have like, you know, like a, a city partner in it not necessarily you know a, a direct partner in the pro well I guess, I guess you could say a direct partner in the project to a certain extent through these uh opportunities that are being provided there it's so different it's such a stark contrast to how things have been for so long you and i were talking in the in the pre-show just now and you know i i was i guess speaking a little uninformed about you know who the property owners were why were they staying empty for as long as they were and, you know, it's, I find it interesting, of course, that there were there were incentives to keep spaces empty for, you know, extended periods. So, I mean, when when you look at, you know, what has been the past and what is now, do you think that you're going to see more and more of these opportunities uh, seized upon by building owners? Well, yeah, the math still makes sense. Um yeah, so uh, what you're going to see, so what you're seeing right now is predominantly the vast majority of the players, there's about a half a dozen of us in the downtown core, we're mostly repurposing existing buildings. You do see a few developers uh, that are working through the process of the city right now so that they can build from scratch, right? Like the Fairmont Project, the guys from Ohio for the old Grace Hospital site. Um, but everybody else... I think there's actually one other group from London, right, that want to repurpose the CBC uh, lands at the waterfront. But everybody else is pretty much repurposing buildings or building on top of existing buildings, like EK Cornerstone, uh, AIPL, which are the central Indian uh, group that are now uh, moving into uh, the opportunities in Windsor. Um, but yeah, it's what you're going to see is we're going to exhaust the existing stock. And then you'll see more buildings go up until demand is satiated. It's capitalism, supply and demand. It, like, this is what's so great is, I mean, Windsor and Essex County, of course, like there's still a lot of ability to expand outward, right? The sprawl. And it's, sure. so, it's so nice to see that, you know, there's something to counter the easy low-hanging fruit we saw the shift from the downtown to roads uh drive we've seen the hollowing out of our communities you know and i don't want to get into the the mega hospital debate right now but you know it's nice to see uh you know turn the core an intentional effort to build it up but not just in the downtown core of course we're looking at it in other neighborhoods as well. And so I'm going to shift a little bit here. Of course, as I said at the beginning, we have Sinisha here in Ford City at 1012 Drulard Road. Co-owners uh, Nicole and Sinisha, you're applying, of course, for 60, 
7,000 roughly in grants. That's for a building facade grant, a retail investment grant, and a tax rebate grant. And you're undergoing you know, roughly 125,000 in renovations at the Morris Dry Goods building. The Windsor Star had uh, described it as, quote, the long neglected Morris Dry Goods <laughs> building. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm not adding that as my own descriptor, but, you know, I'll let you comment about that. You're renovating, though, the ground floor and you're going to be accommodating a commercial coffee roasting operation. Super cool. Why are you doing it? Why in Ford City? How is the CIP uh, the motivating factor? Is it? Well, I think uh, Reese and I operate in a slightly different um, scale of things, right? I mean, um, our mathematics is is a little bit different. Uh, you know, we have only uh, that building as a as a multi uh, use building, and it's been our baby um, for the last three three and a half years. In fact, we had a baby in that span of time um, and he's been a lot cheaper and a lot less hassle, to be honest. But um, it, so Ford City is one of those places that I think the history, and I, I actually, I know there's been a big rebranding effort to make it Ford City, et cetera. But I do think it pays a little bit of disservice um, to the, the history of it because that is one of the oldest French neighborhoods um, starting in 1700s. Um, being a, uh, a Droulard village uh, based on the, the farm roads, et cetera. And it's been built around a sort of a proportion that you expect out of a, a or that you feel uh, on, a, on a very well-functioning main street. So it's that sort of urban scale that brought us there. They made us feel like there's um, a lot of unexplored opportunity there. Um, granted, when we came in, there's been a lot of work already done by a lot of people. Um, you know, uh, Ford City Neighborhood Renewal and the Ford City um, uh, Neighborhood Association have been working really hard to rebrand it, to take it out of that sort of Droulard Road world that it's been stuck in for a really long time where people would drive and, you know, roll their windows up and borderline run red lights. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, a lot of young energy there. There's a lot of entre young entrepreneurs um, that are doing a lot of good things. It has a different feel than um, a lot of places in the city with that in of itself. It brought us there. It's part of it is the history of Morris Dry Goods building. Part of it is the architecture of building itself is one of, you know, a handful of buildings, I would say, on main streets like Ottawa, Erie, um, Olette and Trullard that have the old window shopping sort of the windows, right, that are recessed in. So there's a number of factors that, that came into it, but we, um, um, you know, we, we've kind of came into that opportunity. I don't know that, you know, the, the CIP is a sort of um, uh, cherry on top in a way. It's, it's a thing that really does ease our anxiety, some of the anxieties. I think the first thing that we did was actually get the Brownfield uh, development. Uh, redevelopment grant, which um, helped uh, immensely for us just to get through the banking process, et cetera. And I think that was instrumental to get moving. Um, and since we've been there, things have moved around or things have moved in the positive direction so much that now we have a lot of confidence that what we're doing is right. Um, you know, we've had a vision for this building and obviously it's shifted and changed as we, as we went along, but having a a coffee shop and capitalizing on that um, built-in patio effectively that we have in the front of our building was one of the biggest things because we think that 
Droulard Road with all the businesses there, with all the wonderful neighbors, with the with the vibrancy and strength of the neighborhood, it really needed a place for for people to just kind of sit down and kind of soak it in a little bit. Um, and, so, oh, sorry, go go, please go ahead. Well, the numbers the numbers that Windsor Star published are are I sort of were a bit of news to me, to be honest, because we're in it significantly more than we uh, than than it's printed and uh we're in for it and we you know we were the the tax increment one is interesting because you don't really realize it until the you know until after the fact so obviously that has not changed yet until we're you know gone through the whole process but that's something that you know as a small developer uh, you know you're you're you kind of don't necessarily factor it in all that much but it, it is one of those things that we're, you know, starting to kind of get used to. So it is a big boost uh, when you look at the long picture uh, uh, or, you know, and, and having that collaborative effort with the city. I think it's like Reese was saying, I mean, at any scale, that is a huge, huge boost to your confidence. So even for, a, for you know, small fish like us, it's a great opportunity to, to collaborate with the city and work through that process with more confidence. So I've got a question for both of you, but first I, I want to ask, um, do you know where the Windsor Star got those numbers if they're not, um, if they don't reflect, you know, your experience? Well, there, in our, I, 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 Reese will answer that as well, but I think for, for us, it's from the applications, right? And within some of that, um, you know, you, you put stuff down on applications and then, you know, 10 days later, contractor comes back and says, hey, you know, there's a thing that we didn't expect here. So, or, you know, you realize that what you intended to do is not exactly what you're, so, you know, but that's for, because we're operating on such different scales, you know what I mean? It's more expected uh, for, for things to balloon because the scale of the economy scales are so much less effectively on our, at, at our level. Um, and, you know, Reese's operation is, uh, a lot more sophisticated and deals with bigger numbers. So obviously they have their math a lot tighter. Uh, understood. And I totally understand how um, projects can get surprising after, uh, uh, you know, you fill up the application, you think it's going to be one thing and it turns out to be. I don't care how big all your project is. Yeah. It, you're trying to get a general contractor who's honest enough so that the things that do pop up that weren't expected are actually real. Yeah. And, and we I were, mean, the other thing with it, the other thing with it too, we were, we're in the middle of it with uh, COVID, right? So the, the, like we've, we've out of the, the three and a half years of been going at it, two years now been COVID, right? So doing active construction through COVID has been a challenge. I could imagine. Yeah. So I wanted to, um, I wanted to ask, um, both of you to comment on something that I, I've certainly heard and it's criticism of the CIP itself. And it's a philosophical criticism that, um, you know, these developments would, would be happening anyway, um, that there's, you know, there's not a need for a CIP and it's a, it's a giveaway to developers that the city can't afford. That's, you know, th those are, those are sentiments that I've heard. And what I'd really like to hear is, um, what the importance of the CIP is to building up these neighborhoods and why um, why it's valuable. You want to start center me? Does it matter? No, you go ahead. Um, well, listen, 
first of all, if the chatter in class saying that were correct, then you would see a much more homogeneous distribution of these projects uh, throughout Windsor-Essex. The reality is you don't, and the reason you don't is because that CIP is number one, a tipping point to allow us, uh, as Sid has mentioned quite succinctly, uh, an ability to know that not only can you feel safe in the process and that you're not going to go bankrupt and lose money, um, but also that you know that the city's not going to get uh, in the way more than they would need to. You know, there's always slow ups and hiccups dealing with uh, the bureaucracy, uh, but uh, they are trying their best. Uh, to roll out the red carpet to make these things happen. I mean, the reality is, is yes, um, the uh, the tech. If I didn't have the CIP, I don't think I would have been. I don't think I would have been able to create the joint venture between myself and my real estate income trust uh, corporate partners. I don't think it happens, you know, because the message it's sending to the REIT is, okay, we can bring our investor money down here and not really risk losing it to um, uh, silly versions of bureaucracy, right? Because that happens, that happens all over the place. They know that Windsor's open for business when there's that CIP. And I know we, I'm talking cyclically now, but yeah, these the CIP definitely, definitely, definitely plays a factor in, in the developments you're seeing, there's no doubt. And furthermore, I think to, to everything the reset, I think furthermore to that is um, is the fact that there's a confidence in knowing that it's a it's a, a region or a you know regional approach, let's call it, but you know smaller region or whatever, or, or um, um, uh, a, a approach that is it's you're not alone in it, right? So you you have confidence that you're not the only one dumping a bunch of money into a building that is going into an unknown knowing that the city is serious about getting things moving, right? So if it weren't for CIP, I used to work in Detroit as an architect for a number of years. I was educated there. Uh, I lived there. So I, you know, I've, I've seen Detroit go through its, you know, ups and downs. And if it weren't for that approach within the, the state of Michigan and, and the city of Detroit, you we would not be seeing what we're seeing down there right now. So, um, you know, Dan Gilbert for all his, you know, faults and, and, and praises, um, you know, as a businessman, I don't think he could have stayed in Cleveland easily, right? But, you know, he's he made the move back because the the city has given him a signal that, hey, if you do this, um, we're a partner in this with you, A, and B, you're going to send a seg signal to others that it's okay to spend money because there is, there is a, a, a profitable and positive trajectory. So I think that's really important to acknowledge is that when you're in Fort City and you know in that area that is that is allotted for CIP um, money, it's not even the the obviously the the financial amount and the money has a lot to do with it. But like Reese said, it's you know it's more about the confidence of of either getting other investors in and understanding that your money's not going to just either dwindle away into, into um, a bureaucratic process or go into an investment that can be countered by what your neighbors are doing. So I think it's really important to understand that it creates, it creates a synergy within a region or a, or a court 
uh, to push things forward. So I think that's a that's a real strength of 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 that approach. And I mean, I think it's a, a very smart, very very smart investment for the city. And you know, like the the you know naysayers and the critics, um, you know, if they understood uh, what what is the financial breakdown of the CIP versus our own investment. Um, yeah. you know, that's a wake up call, right? Cause this is, a, this is a, a fairly small amount of money in the, in the grand scheme of things, but that's it nice. is, yeah, but it's about the confidence. Um, it's about the fact that, you know, that you're going into something not alone. And the hardest thing and the scariest thing to do is with your own money or even more so with investors is heading, uh, uh, you know, uh, a pill or, a yeah, a pioneer trip, you know what I mean? Like being the only one. So those are the, those are the big strengths really of, of this kind of approach. So just um, one follow-up on that and, and thanks guys. I, I thought, I think that was um, terrific, but um, I wanted to, to then ask about something that Reese touched on, which was um, the, the bureaucracy and the challenges um, in terms of red tape. So, do you think that the CIP creates um, a different attitude in, in the bureaucracy and administration? It has, has the CIP itself had that impact and, and made it more of a cooperative relationship? I'll start, but yes. Um, what, I've, what I've experienced is, um, there's, two, there's two parts of this, Doug. Uh, what I've experienced is uh, we actually on uh, on the projects uh, one of the bureaucrats has been sort of old school on this and really kind of holding things up to a kind of ridiculous level i hate to say it i'm not going to call anybody out but everybody else jumped on it you know we didn't have to jump on it politicians jumped on it the you know the the, the, the sort of committees uh, jumped on it and it, it went away and i think before there would have been traction for that opposition that would have dragged things out as uh, you know another eight months or a year and just like sin said you're bleeding out money every month you're waiting for the city to approve you so right now for example uh another small project i'm doing downtown is the, the old beer exchange building I'm doing that with one of the real estate guys on my team Greg Myel. we have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and this is a smaller project and we're bleeding out over $4,000 a month, just waiting on the city, you know, and then the city will come up with something else. And it's like, well, why didn't you tell us that six months ago? So we could have addressed it then. And um, I think, and this is the second part of this, I think that's a byproduct and I don't blame the bureaucrats. I think it's a direct uh, structural issue. They're under the legal department currently. And if you know anything about lawyers, there's an acronym CYA. Cover your ass. And so they are not thinking of economic development and profits first and foreign direct investment promoted. That's not the mandate. If you're under the legal department and you're the building bureaucrats and you're the planning bureaucrats, you're covering your ass because that's the mandate coming from the legal department. So now my understanding is the new ch uh, chief administrative officer, Jason Raynar, is shifting all of that under the economic development branch. I can't begin to explain. Uh, it, it feels like there's like a, a beam of light coming from heaven because you have super skilled people in the planning department. So you have super skilled people in the building department. 
And I feel like the shackles are going to come off of a lot of those people that, quite frankly, are worth every single penny that we pay them in tax dollars for their salaries. I think you're going to get a lot more out of them because they're going to be freed up under the economic development branch to, to, to really let their skills shine through. And I would hope that what it's going to do is, and I don't say, I don't know if you experienced the same thing, but we really felt like the first five or six months of the process with the city was 90% of everything. And then it would be like, oh, well, what about this? Little oh, things okay. and wait. Oh, yeah, then we'll do that. Oh, what about this? Oh, okay. Well, it, it, what, and it's like, oh my God, guys, why didn't we say this in the first six months? It's almost like they're scared to let us go. Yeah. You know, at the end, it, it, and maybe I'm wrong, but that's from the outside looking in. And again, I'm saying this with all the praise to them. I think overall they've been great. Like we're not, we're not complaining amongst ourselves. Um, you know, as builders and developers and business partners, nobody's really complaining. It's just kind of like, ah, let's get on with it. You know. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know the other. I'm sort of first time learning of the uh, structural underpinnings of the city uh, department and where where the or that portion of the department and where the, um, um, you know, where the mandate is coming from effectively. But let's not be naive about it. I mean, going through the, the CIP process, it is more bureaucracy. Like you're dealing with more things than you would have to, than just going through a, um, uh, through a, a, a building permit process, et cetera, site review, all that. Um, however, it is worth it in a sense that you can get, um, uh, uh, you can get a little bit more of a collaborative environment within people within the city. So you can get departments to potentially talk to one another under the umbrella of the CIP that you otherwise would be left in, you know, on, on your own terms, trying to kind of having to manage that whole process yourself. So there's a little bit of, of help there that we found where, you know, some of the, the directors have kind of taken it on and some people that are running this stuff have taken it on. Um, and, and, you know, made some of those passages, navigated some of those passages for us. So it's a little bit of both. Um, but on the whole, um, from a development standpoint, and I, I, I mean, yeah, for the, you know, the risk of parroting myself, I guess, it really is worth it when you start thinking about uh, that regional approach and you start thinking about your investment being, um, you know, having the potential to be a little bit safer, whatever that means, if that's even applicable to real estate, but a little bit, um, you know, safer in the knowledge of, of the fact that it's a regional approach, that there's more chance there's going to be others like you coming down the line, et cetera. So, I mean, it, it the passage through the city at any rate is going to be um, difficult one way or another. And it becomes more difficult a lot of times when you are not the, um, you know, the main player or the, or the big player. And I think both Reese and I, even though we're at different scales, you know, we're not some of the subdivision builders. Let's, I'm not going to name anybody. Right. But uh, we're not, you know, we're not at that echelon as far as the city goes. So we have to dot our I's and cross our T's twice, you know, and check everything over in order to, to get through it um, at any rate. So, you know, it's creating more sort of a bureaucratic process for us, but it's also creating a, a bit of a synergy and a bit of a partnership with the city, which is, which is a, a good thing to, to have. And it allows you to kind of structure different 
you know, financial structures with your investors or just gives you kind of peace of mind as you go into certain things. Hey, excellent. Well, thank you so much to both of you, Reese Trenhale, co-owner of the Canada Building, Sinisha Simich, co-owner of 1012 Drulard Road. Thank you both. You know, as I said, we'll, we invite you to stay with us through um, the next segments. If you don't want to dip out, uh, we are going, though, to move on to our next segment of the evening. You win. Only because I'm absolutely starving. Go get food. Go eat. I'm dying. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Go get food. That's perfectly fine, my man. Reese, thanks you so much. We're glad to have you. Yeah, guys, my pleasure. Anytime. Sin, good seeing you, buddy. Likewise, bon appetit. So this story, as I was just saying, their University of Windsor student leaders were shocked to learn their new pool would be shared with the community. Their members at the University of Windsor Student Alliance, the GSA, and the Part-Time Student Association are paying $55 million collectively for the $73 million new Lancer Center Athletic Facility. And as I said, they were surprised to learn the city will be sharing the use of the pool for $3 million. The UWSA, as the Student Alliance goes by, their president said student leaders only found out about the proposed agreement in media reports about the deal between the University of Windsor and the City of Windsor, which sees Adinox lose its pool. The U Windsor Lancer Center Sports Complex took multiple tries at referendums for all three of the different student bodies to agree to pay the $55 million, 75% of the cost of the new Lancer Center, and they're going to be paying it over the course of the next 30 years. Starting next year, students begin to pay $125 annually, and that cost will rise to $200 annually. Towards the end of the agreement, the pool is expected to open next year. And the University of Windsor Athletic Director Mike Harvey admitted students weren't at the table or even acknowledged during the year plus of negotiations between the city of Windsor and the University of Windsor. Doug, I am I'm laughing at this, but it's it's only one of those things to laugh at because we live in a hellscape and it keeps going around and around in circles. And at some point you lose your sense of humor and everything is just laughable. This story has gone to a place I couldn't imagine it going to. And I guess the cynic in me is saying we're finding out about this the way that the student Alliance found out about it through media reports. I only presume that, they were deliberately kept out of the loop because there wasn't a want for leaks about this. And then of course that could lead to the conversation about the what six or seven day public consultation period. The cynic in me says it's all theater and people just show up at council to vote the way that it's preordained. Didn't our mayor say something like that before Doug, what's your take on this situation? Uh, yes, Mayor Dilkins allegedly said something like that. Um, so, you know, I think that I think that the the reaction of students mirrors the reaction of folks in the community, and um, this whole thing had to come together so fast 
um, in order, uh, or at least according to the narrative advanced by some, uh, in order to um, make sure that the city would be able to access the, um, the green energy grant for the construction of the new AD Knox facility. And um, it sure does seem like a lot of folks who would have had a lot to say were not able to be at the table. Uh, I, I don't disagree with you I, um, in that, you know, I think it's reasonable to suspect that there was a tactical element to not including students in, um, in the conversation, uh, whether that's because of a concern about leaks or simply because of the delays that it would have brought into the process um, to have uh, those extra folks around the table and to add those voices to the conversation. But um, these are the people who are paying the freight. They are paying for this facility. And it is one thing for um, the city of Windsor to advance a timeline um, and to you know, um, put together a deal with um, the university. But it's quite another thing for the university to not consult the primary stakeholder um, in you know, the primary stakeholder, the primary funder of this facility to not consult them. Now, um, I read the piece and I'm really not sure how uh, um, much of a problem this is going to be in practice. I'm not really sure how difficult it will be in this new facility to balance the needs of the community and the needs of the students and make sure everyone gets good access. Um, but I think that it, it does raise a concern once that pool has closed, once AD Knox has closed and um, this facility is in operation, if there is um, a, a problem, a contention between parties, who is gonna win? Um, who is going to get the access to the pool that they desire at the expense of the other party. I'm guessing it's going to be the side that is the primary funder of the facility. And I think that that raises some real concerns. So um, taking a step back and just looking at the big picture here, I think that this is one of the weaknesses in the approach to governance that we have seen coming from city leadership time and time again. Um, I, I think I said this when we discussed this issue previously, it kind of reminds me of the Christmas lights. Um, pretty good idea, something that um, turned out to be a good thing for this community, but um, putting it forward in a hurry uh, meant that you didn't get to hear um, those constructive thoughts of other voices and some of the persistent um, criticisms of the Jackson Park Christmas lights. Uh, for example, why were they not located in BIAs? Why were they not um, distributed around the city? Why didn't we do this a different way? Why are we buying um, you know, all of the assets that are required for, uh, for this installation um, at the most expensive possible time? All of those conversations were important and valuable. And, and I think that the weakness here that runs between those two issues is that um, consulting the community and having a big, messy, um, contentious conversation is not a weakness, it's a strength. Good ideas survive those kind of experiences. And sometimes you wanna just get things done and I can understand that, but um, no plan that comes from one or a few is going to be as good as a plan that is vetted by many and the many people who will be involved with it and have, um, and have some um, reason 
and and some incentive to to really think through it and um, and bring constructive and important feedback. So all of that to say, uh, I think that the, I think that I'm not sure how real the concerns are, but if they are real, um, if they aren't just hurt feelings and a um, you know an emotional reaction to being left out of a discussion that you really should have been part of, they spell trouble for the future for this whole deal, and and that should be concerning to everybody. Yeah, I like what you were saying there. You know, you get buy-in from the community you go overcome the hurdles, you fix the issues in the ideal situation and you continue to buy the bot, get the buy-in. And then you actually have a project that everyone can be happy with, but it might not meet your timeline. As, as you said, it might be more expensive, but what are you trying to do? Shove something down the community who on um, the community when they don't want it. Maybe in some cases, I'm just, I'm so just flabbergasted though, in this situation, how you have both parties here between the university and I guess the city, both, you know, tacitly, well, the university specifically admitting, yeah, we excluded them for the conversations. I wonder, I wish that we had Pat on the program right now. Are there any legal implications here for the university from the student union who is going to be continually paying for this over the next number of years? They passed a vote. It was based on a very specific set of circumstances. This was our place that we're funding, but now they're losing access. And I wonder if there is not, you know, Windsor has uh, at least one of the best class action lawsuit firms in the country. I wonder if there'd not be any interest uh, in looking towards this because this just feels like what a bait and switch. Uh, it's one thing for the city to force these decisions through a council vote where we're able to elect our counselors or, you know, give them the boot if we don't like what they've done. So for better or not, what the city entered into was a specific agreement and it was based on council voting one way and they have the right to do that. I'm really surprised here by the university being willing. We said at the very beginning that it was surprising the university would get involved in this whatsoever. Um, I'm just, I'm flabbergasted at how, how far their involvement actually went. Uh, the deception that their own athletic director has admitted to. Yeah, um, just to be fair, Mike Harvey also said in the piece that, um, you know, the, the existing facilities are shared already with the community. Um, certainly, I can remember taking part in um, athletic competitions and events as a student uh, at the St. Dennis Center. So it's not something that um, has never been done. It's not unprecedented. And I think the devil's in the details. Yeah. Um, but those, you know, those two sides, the, the student side and the official side on the university end, it really sounds to me like a bit of dialogue would, um, would benefit them and, and a bit of conversation about exactly what this deal means for students and whether students are willing to accept it. It's, um, you know, it goes, again, I just, I think it's a, a bit of a red flag in terms of um, the argument that there was appropriate consultation. Um, and, you know, Mayor Dilkins made that point very passionately um, at the council meeting. We've been consulting on this for, you know, X number of years. We have had endless conversations about this. We've consulted, we've consulted, we've consulted. Um, the folks who are, have skin in the game don't agree. 
And, and that to me is the, you know, the final and decisive counter argument um, that, that tells you that there was not sufficient community consultation here. Yeah, you know, certainly. And, you know, it was a contentious vote at the university student union in, I believe, 2017, willing to be corrected on that one. But it was, a, you know, a few years ago to vote for the athletic building and put the money on future students four years down the road for the next 20 years, um, 30 years, excuse me. So it was contentious already. And uh, the current students today, I, I would say, you know, certainly they came into a situation that they weren't able to agree upon, vote upon, have any input upon. And now it's, you know, it's been diluted into something further. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. And we're going to keep our eye on it as it keeps evolving. And like things that evolve, this show is evolving as well. We're going to go to our last segment. It was, a, it was an okay segue, Doug. Keep your eye rolls to yourself. The, the audience can't see them, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you instant feedback to help you improve, John. Thank you. I thought it, I thought it was good at connected A to B or B to C rather. Uh, last segment of the night, Windsor Essex is under consideration for a new immigration pilot project. Windsor stars Dave Waddell put this out. Windsor Essex, as I said, it's under consideration to participate in a pilot project to help municipalities fill labor pool gaps and drive economic growth. The municipal nominee program is setting aside roughly 5,000 immigration slots nationally, and they're looking for 20 communities across the country to participate. The program is going to be run by the Ministry of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship, and it'll launch this fall. It is based on kind of similar to the Atlantic immigration pilot and it was aimed at helping international students who wanted to stay in Canada after graduation. It was a pilot project that was made permanent because of its success. Now, our Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship, Marco Mendocino, was in town recently, and he credited the executive director of the Windsor Jewish Federation for championing Windsor's interest, saying his roundtable with local service providers and leaders discussed the importance of the international students program to the local economy and supports needed to help transition newcomers to the region. These are two programs that are part of a, the government's initial strategy to help direct more immigrants from large urban centers to mid-sized communities. Uh, the university and St. Clair College were credited as an ability to draw international students as a boost to our local economy and as a way to lure companies looking to hire workers who are talented to locate here. And the federal government has set aside a target of attracting roughly 400,000 newcomers this year after the COVID-19 pandemic limited numbers last year. Doug, I'm going to bring you in on this one. My, my thoughts right off the bat on it, and then we'll get to you, Sinisha, as well. I know that you've got some thoughts about this. Um, you know, my, my take on it is, you know, good, good. You know, my background is Jewish. Uh, I was taught as a as a young Jew um, under our uh, prime minister during the 
uh, Holocaust. We saw the uh, SS St. Louis turned away saying that a ship filled with Jews, that none is too many to be settled on our shores. So for me, you know, it's a very personal issue knowing how our past uh, wasn't necessarily always up to what it should have been. And I look to any opportunity to, uh, you know, take, take in people who are looking to find a better life, who are, uh, whether it's, you know, escaping persecution, whether it's simply immigrating because they want to leave somewhere. If people are looking to come here, man, we're Canada. Let's be honest. We have a hell of a lot of land. Like there's a lot of space here. Like we need not be in the concern of like, oh, is can't, are we full? Are we full yet? No, no, we're not. Are we full? No, we're not full yet. So, I mean, I look at a program like this. It's great. Looking at our temporary foreign worker program. Uh, I mean, the, I, I look at the comments on, you know, our local news articles about it. Uh, on this article, there were a couple comments, uh, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, of course we'd be we'd be looking to bring them in or uh, look at uh, the 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 migrant workers are getting vaccines when all of us don't even have vaccines. And it's like, well, you know, they're literally picking the food that you eat. Like, are you doing it? Like, this is the point. Like, we're a society. We're a community. We need more people. We Windsor needs to, you know, Windsor-Essex needs to continue to grow. We, we can be a powerhouse of a region. Um, all this to say, I'm going to bring your voice in here, Doug. But, you know, it's a very personal issue to me. And it's an issue that I think we need here. It's something we need here in Windsor-Essex. Yeah, absolutely. I'm um, I'm supportive of more immigration. You know, the government in recent years has uh, been pretty aggressive in terms of uh, bringing new people to Canada, whether that be through traditional immigration pathways or through the um, uh, international student program. Um, I think what is really positive about this for Windsor um, is the uh, the creation of a of a firmer pathway to permanent residency and citizenship for international students. Uh, I've had the opportunity to um, work with many people who have come through uh, the international student program in Windsor uh, in my particular field. And I can tell you that these folks are coming here, not just to go to school, they're coming here with experience they're coming here with skills, um, folks with, with years and decades of skills that we just don't have here. Um, the, the number of niches and missing pieces to the puzzle of our local economy that we can fill um, through, through uh, uh, you know, embracing international students and, and ensuring that there is a continuation for them, it's going to have an incredibly positive impact on our community as a whole. Um, I think that there are uh, some pieces around the edges here that are concerning that we need to talk about. We need to talk about how, um, how the, the city and the education institutions better work together um, to plan for um, increases in the student population. You know, we saw that there was there were some challenges out of the gate that I didn't think needed to happen, particularly around transit. And there are some, you know, there are ongoing pressures um, in the housing market that I, I think are still unwinding. So there are opportunities for us to do better um, all together as a community. I, I think too that um, defining the international student program explicitly as an immigration pathway is a solid thing to do because 
Um, it's going to help us get those supports to students earlier on in the process. Um, one of the challenges I think that we've had, at least in the initial stages of this program, is that um, international students were not able to access many of the existing programs and facilities for um, newcomers because they weren't technically coming through one of those traditional immigration pathways. That's gotten better. Um, so things are improving. Overall, I see this as a positive because the more that we can do to make sure that international students are not just passing through Windsor, but they're going to be sticky, they're going to stay here, they're going to make a contribution to the culture, to the life of our community and uh, to the economy of our region. And I, I think that anything we can do to make our, our community as welcoming and accommodating as possible is a good thing. Absolutely. You know, we're dealing with uh, serious issues of youth retention. It's been an ongoing topic in this region for an ongoing number of years. I know most of my friends that I grew up with uh, moved away for university and they never looked back. But if we have a group of people that are coming here willingly, deciding to be here, we should be doing everything we can, as you said, make it as sticky as possible. I like that descriptor. Like, let's like, don't let them leave. Like you're here. You don't get to go. Sorry. We need you. You're crucial to us. Uh, Sinisha, let's bring you in on this. I know you said you had a personal uh, connection to wanting to talk about this. Yeah, much like you, I have. I, 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 any one of these stories really kind of sticks personally with me because, you know, I'm a generation zero immigrant. So my family and I moved to Canada when I was 13 uh, to Windsor shortly thereafter. Uh, you know, so went through high school here, et cetera. Uh, did my little, you know, trotting around Canada before I came back to, to Windsor ultimately. And I think there's a, there's an interesting point of that article that um, uh, we haven't touched on that I think is really crucial is that the government is starting to make, um, or the, the federal government is making a um, concerted effort to bring people to mid-sized communities as opposed to the mega cities only. And I think that is, uh, um, is going to be very crucial for the uh, growth of our nation as a whole. Uh, there's only so much Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal can take, to be honest. And um, the reason, uh, the other part of that too, I think from a financial standpoint with the, you know, uh, you know, I'm in the trade, you know, construction trade world. And, you know, anybody that I talk to is stressed for, for uh, work. They're stressed for, or they're not stressed for work. They're stressed for labor, stressed for people to do to work. Um, so there's, there's a real shortage and that goes not just in my industry and across all industries, right? And those type of jobs that are in need in Windsor here, uh, the delta between that pay, the qualification necessary, meaning the language expertise, et cetera, all the things that new, newcomers don't necessarily um, have right off the bat. So the delta between getting into those jobs and a good life is so much smaller than it is in cities like Toronto and Vancouver. Um, so I think to move people in here is a, is a, is a very smart move. Um, and I think the other uh, part of it that Doug touched on is the, the, the integration and transition uh, sort of a piece. And I feel like, you know, the city of Windsor still has um, you know, it is a very welcoming city and it is a city as, you know, we've seen through these, you know, waves of, you know, anti-Muslim, anti-Semitic, like all of these horrible 
uh, waves of hate that have swept through certain cities in the country. Windsor for how mixed it is and how multicultural it is, how diverse it is and how sort of close and packed we are together has, you know, thank God not had anything like that. And I think that's a, that's a true testament to the open-mindedness and, and the beauty of people here. But I think the, to integrate people faster and give them an easier path um, into, into Canadian life is still a, a true challenge for Canada as a whole. And uh, Windsor as well, I think, that doesn't, doesn't really stand out from that. So I think more robust uh, with this investment, I think more robust transition um, uh, methodology or system needs to be in place to make, to ensure, so to make the, 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 the you know, get that sticky milieu for people to stay around, right? Like, like, like Doug was saying, like get that figured out so we can keep people as well as, you know, we can, um, we can get new people that come in here and, and have an easier passage into integrating into Canadian life. Yeah, you know, definitely. I think uh, I like what you were saying that focusing, you know, as the program does on bringing it to mid-urban cities rather than just the large urban centers, you know, that's very much what was done after World War II, you know, you saw a lot of migration towards uh, Saskatoon, Regina, Winnipeg. I'm reading Seth Rogen's uh, new book, Yearbook, and uh, there's a really funny joke that he says about his grandparents having, you know, escaped, you know, Europe dur just during uh, the, the World War II beginning. And he says they were settled in Winnipeg. A, a city that is so hot in the summer with black flies and mosquitoes you want to escape. And during the winter, it's so cold, your face will fall off because of how cold it gets. But he went, my grandparents, they loved it. And they decided this place is great. We're going to settle here. And this is our roots now. And I think, you know, the opportunity, though, of people coming here and, you know, not just being exposed to, you know, what Canada is presented on the big posters, but, you know, some of the great great cities that we have, uh, communities across the entire country, you know, there's great economic opportunities, there's great social opportunities. Um, it's just, you know, it, it's a win, win, win all around. So really appreciate your uh, take there, Sinisha, on it. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes, you know, from from people that I've that I've known who've been in this position in, in Toronto, etc., you know, and in Quebec, where we were first settled, um, you don't have an option really, but to be on, on partial government assistance in cities like that. And I think financially, it just makes a lot more sense to bring people in places like this where, where that, you know, where you can make that, you know, the, if you're still in Canada, everything is as, you know, everything is as, as good as it is um, compared to potentially where you're coming from, you know, if you're escaping Syria or, or in our case was, you know, the Balkan Wars. So, you know, that's kind of, across the across the uh, board but you know you can make a, a life uh, an easier life here than you can in a lot of the places that's what's so great about this country yeah absolutely we've got uh, amazing opportunities here well Sinisha, thank you so much for joining us tonight really appreciate it thank you guys for having me and thank you for letting me um, uh, parachute into this uninvited i appreciate oh. it into this part anyway. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Just like the, the program is going to be bringing new people to Canada, we are more than happy to bring new people into additional segments. Is that one okay, Doug? Like, is that oh, okay? Like, it was... It was I, I don't know, man. 
Man, I was I was gonna I was gonna jump in and say, Doug, look at that, look at that segue. Come on. That like, was masterful. There you go. <laughs> I I like him. You can come back whenever you want, Senator. <laughs> you got Thank a green light. There yeah. we go. Thanks. Well, this has been Rose City Politics. Thanks so much for listening tonight. Our regular panel tonight included myself, John Lidke, and Doug Sartori. Doug, we're going to talk, though, right now about four-year consideration. It's the end of the show segment before we do the very last of the you know throw-throughs. I'm going to let you go up first. What is up? So this week I wanted to... Um take note of uh, uh, the passing of um, an era in Windsor. This is the week when Fraser Fathers um, officially ended his COVID chronicle. Um, for the past 60 odd weeks, uh, he has been writing a weekly blog, um, giving updates on issues in our community, as well as um, you know items related to the pandemic. I think it's been a really valuable uh, tool for the community and um, really shows how uh, citizen journalists, whether Frazier would think of himself as a citizen journalist or not, I'm not sure, but it really shows how citizen journalists can um, fill the gaps that uh, traditional media leaves and the increasing gaps that traditional media leaves. We rely on media for um, the information about the goings on in our community and um, we still rely on them to this day. But there are a lot of stories that go untold. There are a lot of issues that could use um, a different perspective. And Frazier is always willing on his blog, which I hope he will continue in some form or another, always willing um, to take on issues and share his perspective, you know, and uh, I think he's, he's gotten his share of pushback. Uh, he's gotten his share of challenges over the years and, and especially over the last 60 odd weeks of, um, of the COVID chronicle. Um, the, uh, I think he, I think they're actually just the weekly posts. They're just numbered. Right. Um, but uh, so I wanted to, to just take notice of that and, and call it out and, and say thanks to Fraser for doing that work for the community um, week in and week out. We really appreciate it. Uh, I, I happen to, to know that today uh, Fraser also mentioned on social media that it's his last day um, working at United Way um, Windsor Essex. So big transition for Fraser. He's um, He's brought a lot to this community, made a huge impact both professionally and in the work he does, um, at, you know, in, in the community as an individual. And I, I think, you know, we we give out a lot of awards in this town to the usual suspects. Um, there's sort of awards get passed around, recognition gets passed around. Frazier is one of those people who who might not ever be uh, headlining a local award show because he's he's just a little bit too um too uh candid for that if uh if i could use that expression he's a little too candid for the awards um so i thought it would be good to carve out a few minutes on road city politics to appreciate the work that frazier has done and wish him well in um, what he chooses to do in the future for your consideration oh i like that you know frazier has done yeah, the blog has been incredible, as you said, filling in a lot of gaps. He did like such meaningful coverage, I think, to uh, school board coverage. Uh, just like he he was diving into things that, you know, the, the star would have done 
back when they used to have lots of journalists to sit in meetings. He went through it all uh, really, really, really great. I think we should say that he's nominated for the first Rosie. We already gave a bunch of Rosies out. Oh. I think I think Fraser did win one, actually. Really? Yeah, I think he did. Man, we'll, see, we'll we'll have awards again, folks. When uh, uh, when we're not the first the first first post pandemic, then Rosie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I think we're gonna leave that at the uh, four year consideration right there. The one that I had had sort of fallen apart uh, throughout of the throughout the day. So we'll just keep the show at that point right now. And it's been a fun one though, Doug. I uh, I really enjoyed this one. Listening to what both Reese and Sinisha had to say about how the CIPs have, you know, like spurred what they have done, why they've gotten into it and what it means was, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's so inspiring to see, you know, meaningful development. Yep, absolutely. I, I thought it was uh, really good to hear from them. You know, I, um, I'm sure that many of the uh, the naysayers uh, that um, Reese mentioned are are actually among our listeners, and uh, um, I know that perhaps some of our listeners would roll their eyes to see that we have a show with two developers on. But um, I thought that uh, they brought some really good information and a really important perspective on on the issue, and uh, really helped to clarify things and. Um, mm. And they're a couple of fun guys to have in the virtual room. So all the way around, it was a fun show. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I mean, listen, we had two developers on, but we purposefully kept Don off the show. (laughs) We didn't want that perspective as well. It would be too much. So anyways, though, you know, it it was a fun one. Glad to have been through it. If you're listening, you want to support us, head over to patreon.com forward slash Rose City Politics. Check us out in BizX Magazine at bizxmagazine.com. We are in their summer issue. We are talking about priorities that council and administration should set moving forward. Please make sure that you like, follow, and share us on social media, wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to comment as well if that's your kind of thing. And as I said at the top of the show, we've been able to broadcast live on tape for the past 16 months Thanks to the kind support of Leuna 625, building better communities. We are so excited to end this digital format, or at least rather get back together and be able to put it out the way that it used to be. Uh, we've been talking internally. We love the video aspect. We don't think that we're going to be killing it. We're going to have to figure out some way, though, that once we get to you know what seems to be a closer and closer in-person resumption date how to figure that out doug last thought before we kill it how excited are you to get back together in person um i'm really looking forward to it as you know we've i think we've we've embraced the zoom format and we've um we've gotten to be pretty good at at having a conversation in this format but um all you have to do is think back to some of those great conversations that we had around a table when we were all in the same physical space and uh i'm i'm really itching to to get back and uh get together as you know as soon as we are legally able to do so um and i i think that we'll we'll bring the show to new heights yeah absolutely well hey looking forward to it thanks for listening in everyone we'll be back next week and that'll be july so we'll catch you then this is rose city politics we'll see you next week